0: Welcome to the LifeHouse Church Podcast. LifeHouse is a church that exists to invite all people to live an uncommon life by following Jesus, doing life together, getting in the game, and leaving a legacy. We hope that today's message helps you grow as a follower of Jesus, gives you perspective to see yourself and others differently, and inspires you to make a difference in the world around you. Now, let's get to this week's message. Well, good morning, LifeHouse family! So good to see Oh, you can see this 9am crowd is hype. I like y'all. You guys are hype. I'm hyped to preach. It's going to be a great day today. I want to remind you Easter's next Sunday. Look, I want to encourage you be bold and inviting. Start to send those text messages out today to family members, friends day. What is the worst they could say is no the best that could happen is they see the reason for the Easter season and they receive and start to follow Jesus. So I want to encourage you, be bold in inviting. Send those text messages out. You can grab invite cards. We've, we've got social media invites. So just, just do what you have to do to, because, honestly, Easter is the time where if you ask people, hey, come to church with me, they will most of the time say yes. Yeah. So let's be bold and encourage people to come and join us next Sunday. Before we get to Easter, though, we have to talk about today, which, because we don't have a Good Friday service, we're going to kind of make, like we always make the Sunday before Easter kind of our Good Friday service, where we're going to talk today about sin and the cross. Uh, aren't you so glad you came today? Just so glad that you're here today. Uh, some of you are like, dang it, I should have I stayed home today, or if this is your first time here, I should have chose Easter for the first time. Sunday. But I, but I promise you, right, you're going to hear some bad news today, but the great part is you're going to hear some good news. Here's some bad news and some good news. And speaking of bad news and good news, how, how, how many people here, you, like if somebody comes to you and says, I've got some good news and some bad news, I think inevitably based on how you're wired and who you are and kind of your personality, you're going to choose one or the other. When they say, do you want the bad news first or the good news first? So just by a show of hands here, how many of you are like, you're a realist you 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 want it straight, define reality. How many of you are the bad news crowd? Okay, my y'all are my people, okay? I'm like, give me give me the baseline. Give me the bad news first. Tell me how bad it can be. Alright? And then how many of you are the good news crowd? Y'all are the oh. We have, a, we have a bad news church. Look at God. We, have, we, have, we got like three bad news people, Dwayne. Well, or excuse me, three good news people. They want to hear the bad news first. See, I think you attract who you are. So I just think if you're the bad news, I'm kind of a bad news person. So, you know, hey, it's what we got here. But anyway, we're so glad that you are here today. The message is actually called I've Got Bad News and Some Good News. So we're going to actually talk today about... The bad news, and really, we, 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 we need to talk about sin. And let me just tell you about sin, because honestly, some churches don't talk enough about sin. Some churches talk too much about sin. And it really is, and I mean, I, I have heard people tell me, I left the church that I was at because all they talked about is sin. And I've had some people tell me, I left that church because they never talked about sin. And just to let you know, from the seat of a lead pastor, you know how sometimes you can play armchair quarterback? Yeah. You can be the Monday morning QB. And you can, you know, and, and trust me, I've been a Jaguar fan for 25 years. I do that a lot. And most of the time, I critique the quarterbacks. I, I critique our team because we're terrible, right? And, and I'm just like, well, why didn't they do this and why didn't they do that? But you know, there's so many things I don't know. The play call, the defense that was called, what the quarterback was thinking, what the offense So there are a lot of things that we can judge when we're not in a seat. When we're not in the position, and I just want to encourage you, be careful of judging people when you've never played their position, when, when you've never been where they are. Because honestly, pastors struggle with this. We struggle with how much do we talk about sin? How much do we not talk about sin? Why? Be, be, because imagine if the church is the family of God. Imagine you growing up in your family, and all you heard was all you did wrong. All your parents pointed out was what you did not do. All your parents pointed, and some of you grew up in that environment where it was so nitpicky, it was, it, was, it was just, they never celebrated you, they never encouraged you, they never told you what you could be, they never said like, hey, you could do this. It was just all like negativity and just telling you what you did wrong. This is what some churches can feel like when all they talk about is sin. But also too, it's like it's not healthy for a church to never talk about sin. Because if you don't talk about sin, then you can never talk about the good news that Jesus rescued you from that Jesus rescued you from sin. Also, too, it's like if you never talk about sin, people won't have a good moral compass of what is right and what is wrong, right? So, so here's the thing, th- thing where I put this slide up. Too much talk about sin can lead to guilt, shame, and condemnation. Not enough talk about sin can lead to an abuse of grace, harmful habits, and harming the reputation of Jesus. This is why Jesus said he came full of grace and truth. He did not just come full of grace, though he is grace. He did not just come full of truth, but he is truth. He came with the perfect dichotomy, the perfect mix of grace and truth. And many times when he applied it, it was particular to the need and the situation and the person. And I'll just be honest with you. This is the line at Lifehouse. I and we try to walk. Because some of you walk into church and the least thing you need is someone telling you what you've done wrong you need to know there's hope and grace and love and forgiveness and mercy from God. But there's some of you that walk in here and you need some truth. Because you are a church veteran and you know a lot but you don't do a lot. And you need someone to be like, obey what you know. Okay, are y'all hearing my heart, right? Like it, it, it is a dance, right? But Jesus came full of grace and truth. But here's here's, here's the thing. We need to talk about sin. So that's what we're going to do today, but then we're going to talk about the cross and we're going to talk about the benefits of what Jesus did for us. There's bad news, but there's good news. Talk like what is sin. I'm going to give you five thoughts about what sin is. Number one, sin is missing the mark. Even the Greek word in the Bible that is used for sin a lot of times is the Greek word, hamartia. And that word is literally in a kind of like archery term that was used when, and when a particular arrow or shot did not hit the bullseye. It missed the mark. So when the word sin or sinfulness or sinful is used in the Bible, it's got this connotation that a mark has been missed. A standard hasn't been lived up to. It is missing the mark, which obviously we know God is the standard, what, who he is and what he says is the standard. And when we sin, we step outside of that. Secondly, sin is the sovereignty of self. This is what John Tyson said that, that I love, because ultimately sin, you choosing sin, is you exchanging God's best for your best. It is you putting yourself in a place and within a position to where you are God, what you say, what you believe, what you think is best. We might not think of it that way that way. But ultimately, when Adam and Eve chose to eat the apple, what they were saying is we want our way to be better than God's way. And let's just be honest. In our culture, if we're to do some cultural analysis here, literally, in our culture, the only cultural sin we have is doing anything against yourself. And this is how you know we have exchanged God, like like God being God for us being God, whenever we talk about who we've sinned against. So it's gone from we've sinned against God to now the worst thing we can do is sin against ourselves. Why? Because our culture is you, 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 you. Self this, self that, self, 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 self. So, so now the language is so much, I don't want to do anything that isn't true to my authentic self. <sighs> And y'all know what I'm talking about, but you can tell the language has shifted from "I don't want to do anything to go against the one that created me." I don't want to do anything that goes against my authentic self. You can see how the God has shifted to us, so the language has shifted. I love what Tim Keller said. He said this. Um, let me pull it up here. He said, "If your God, yeah, he says if your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping and." idealized version of yourself because i think it's wild when we think like we're shocked when god would disagree with what we want i can't believe it right but but if if we don't think god will ever disagree with us and we believe we're the ones that need to be in charge then then we are falling into the same trap adam and eve did that's why i said the bible doesn't just happen the bible happens it's something it tells us a story of who we are so sin is the sovereignty of the self thirdly sin is an infection and has spread to every area of our being sin and you can feel the effects and weight of it in every area of our lives you just turn on the news or just tune tune into your own life every area of our being is fallen our emotions our physical bodies, our hearts, our souls, the feelings we have, all of these things are infected and they are fallen. And we can see if we don't have an accurate view of sin, then we will treat symptoms instead of treating the root. We see this in our world. Our world wants to treat symptoms of the root, which is sin. We we try to put band-aids on gaping wounds. And we can see this governmentally. We can see this in our own lives. It's like when we look, we have to know what we are seeing. The root of all the pain that we see has the root of sin that goes all the way back to the garden. Fourthly, sin is what you do and what you don't do. Some of us think sin is just what we do. Let me just remind you, sin is what you do and what you do not choose to do that is right. It is sin of omission and sin of commission. Fifthly, sin is a separator. Sin ultimately separates. We can see this from the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, it separated them from God vertically and from themselves horizontally. I have to have an accurate description of what sin is. Why? Because scripture says this. Everyone has sinned. Welcome to Lifehouse. Everyone has sinned, Paul said in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious Standard. Okay, John, great. Thank you for telling me I'm a sinner. Thank you for describing what sin is. Can you please tell me what I need to do with it? I want to give you some thoughts about what to do with your sin. Number one, you should feel sad, not mad about it. You should feel sad. There's a big difference, especially followers of Jesus. Your sin should not make you mad. Ultimately, it should make you sad. Why? Because sinning doesn't just break God's laws, it breaks God's heart. And that's where I think we have to be clear on this, of whenever you sin, it's not just you breaking uh, law 14.2, sub-law A. You are ultimately breaking a father's heart. And parents, you know this. Whenever a child does not follow what you know is the best standard for their life, it's not just them physically breaking a law, emotionally it's breaking your heart. Because you know what that path is going to lead them towards. And and so really sin should all, should should bring this sadness Instead of madness and I want to talk to you about a couple different cycles that we can fall into with the sadness cycle and the madness cycle And these are two responses to what we do with our sin. The first one is this the sadness cycle Which is what I want to encourage you and teach you to actually practice when 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 you think about what to do with With your sin it starts off with the sin because we all have sin so when we, are, when, when, when we sin or when we become aware of our sin, it turns into sadness, almost like, God, I broke your heart. When sadness leads to something that is so godly, it's called conviction. Did you know conviction's a gift? The convicting voice of the Holy Spirit that kind of prick in your spirit, like, I sinned, I, I, I did not do what God's glorious standard, do you know that is a gift, family? And the thing is this, the longer you don't listen to that, the quicker you become numb to the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit. And when you become numb to the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit, you are not just becoming numb to the voice of conviction, you are in many ways becoming numb to the voice of God in your life. Because we, we, we want the comforting voice of God, the loving voice of God, the providing voice of God, but we'll welcome that, but not the conviction. And you just can't welcome one part of God's voice you got to welcome all of it. If, if, if you want the comforting voice, if you want the loving voice, if you want the affirming voice, you have to also accept the, conv- the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit. And conviction is a gift. It is a gift from the Father. Like how many of you, like as, I mean, maybe I'm just so in this because I have a 12-year-old and I'm in the midst of forming a moral compass, my God, and it is so... Life-giving to me when my son realizes I, that was not right. And he comes to me and he says, Dad, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Right? So sin, it should lead to sadness, and then it should lead to conviction, and then conviction ultimately leads you to repentance. And this is what, as a church, we've talked about a lot. We talk a lot about repentance. Why? Because just as Martin Luther said, the Christian life is one of repentance repentance is a turning it is a one-time decision of saying the, the like my life is turning in the direction from going to where i want to go and i'm returning and i'm going towards the one who made me created me and loves me and i'm turning i am repenting and going that way but how many of you know you make a one-time decision but then there's thousands and thousands and thousands of those decisions throughout a day week year month lifetime Amen. why because you're going towards jesus and your heart inevitably wants to turn It wants to go back to you, and then you have to repent and turn and keep going there. But that is what conviction leads to. It leads to repentance. Repentance is turning. And this is the cycle that my prayer is, is that as you become aware of your sin, that as you... The Lord convicts you that you would not turn mad. And we're going to get into that. You would not turn mad. It would break your heart. You would become sad. That would lead you to conviction. And the conviction would lead you then to repentance. And then it would lead you to keep going to the Father to ask for that. Because that is what I love is Jesus. Scripture says a broken and contrite heart. The Lord will Never despise. Never despise. So you're either going to do with your sin the sadness cycle or the madness cycle. The madness cycle is when you have sin, you get mad. You start saying things like, I suck. No one loves me, right? This is the, Why would God love me? Why? So you, you, you start to hear these voices, these kind of voices, and then you get mad at yourself, and I thought that I would be better, and I thought that I would never do that again. And I, right, we start to say these things, and then that... That, that sin goes to madness, and then that madness goes to condemnation. When condemnation isn't just you did something bad, condemnation is you are something bad. And this is what the devil ultimately wants you to fall into. Because if you fall into condemnation, what it will end up leading you to do is not have, have, not have you repent. It will have you run away. Why? Because you won't want to go to the Father. You won't want to go to him because I messed up. And, and, you'll, and, and this is the cycle so many Christians live in and why so many of you, like, like literally this is your cycle and why you run away from church to why you're here a couple months and then you're gone. And it's kind of this cycle, and you know what it is. You're here, you're here, you're kind of bought in, things are going good, and then you get caught in this, well, I'm not living it, and then you get mad, then you start condemnation, and why this, that, and the other thing, and then you end up running away. What I want to encourage our church to do with our sin is not do the madness cycle, but to do the sadness cycle. My prayers that our church would have, if We are not living in the way of Jesus any area of our life that we would say, Lord, if there's any unclean way within me, tell me about it so I can be sad about it. I can welcome your conviction. And then as as a sign of your conviction, I'm going to repent. This is what we have to do with our sin. We have to get on the sadness cycle. But not just get on the sadness cycle. You know what you do with your sin? You take it to Jesus. (laughs) You you, you, you give it to Jesus daily. Daily. First John 1 John 1.9, if you confess, everyone say confess. confess. If you confess your sins, he's faithful. He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all righteousness. What I have learned, though, is to do this rightly, you need margin. Like, you actually need time, margin time, to let the Holy Spirit examine you. I love what David prayed in, in the book of Psalms. He said, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Search me, know me. I mean, how many times have you sat before the Lord and you just said, Lord, I want you to search me, not I'm going to fall into condemnation and shame and guilt, but search me if there's any offensive thing I've said, any negative thing I, I have thought, any stuff, anything that I have looked at, any, any, any action I've done against somebody, anything that I was supposed to do that I did not do. Lord, would you reveal it to me? I'm not going to fall into shame, guilt, and condemnation. Would you reveal it to me? Because my heart deep down is to please you. And you, you welcome that in. You give it margin. And then as the Lord starts to bring things up, do you know what you do as, as it kind of comes out of you? You kind of just say, hey, Jesus. Hey, Jesus. Yeah, I said that. I, you give your sin to Jesus. Y'all, this is why Jesus came. He came to be the bearer of sin. He came to be the one to deal with the sin problem. If you have sin, give it to Jesus today. Because ultimately, your sin, you're going to have to be held accountable for it. And some people, what ultimately hell is, is people wanting to pay for their own sins. Heaven is you just saying, is just accepting the gift that Jesus has already given, that Jesus already lived for you. Jesus came to deal with sin. And one of the ways that Jesus dealt with this in Jesus's life as we can see during Passion Week. And this is kind of where Passion Week started, where where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he was even in the Garden of Gethsemane, but even before that, he was talking to his disciples about a cup, about a cup. And the way Jesus described his suffering and the way Jesus described what he was going to have to endure for the sins of humanity, he described it as a cup in the garden of Gethsemane where he was praying before he kind of ultimately started the mission to the cross. The gospel writer, Matthew notes this in Matthew 26. He says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed my father, if it is possible, may this what cup be taken from me yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knew what was before him. Jesus knew the cup that he was going to have to drink, the price that he was going to have to pay, and and the sin that he was going to have to bear in his body. And and one one of my absolute favorite books to read during the week before Easter is the book called The Day I Was Crucified. And I would so encourage you to get your phones out and take a picture of this book. Even if you hate reading this book has like 50 chapters but the chapters are like one page. It's amazing. It's like my kind of book. But but this book is actually a like a first-hand account written from the perspective of Jesus about what he was walking through in the Passion Week. It's powerful. It gives you a new perspective on the cross. Does it take some creative liberty? Yes, but is it theologically sound? Yes. Good enough For me. And Gene Edwards is is an amazing writer. And he talks about, like I said, Jesus' perspective of being in the garden and having to drink this cup. And Gene Edwards here writes some parts that I want to read to us about how he describes, from Jesus' perspective, the cup that he was about to drink, which is the cup of his suffering and enduring the sin of mankind this is what it says he says the cup spewed and like i said these and like i said this is from jesus's perspective so these are kind of like jesus's thoughts what he's thinking about where he's at and what he's doing the cup spewed its vile venom until the stench of its contents seemed to fill the winds of the earth i watched as all the sins of the sons of abraham slipped into the cup I saw their centuries of rebellion, idolatry, incest, murder, lies, deceit, make their way into the cup. The sins of the whole Hebrew race had now become one with that cup. My hands and face began to pour forth blood until the ground around me was soaked. I wept again. I called out for deliverance and cried, Abba, Father, my body began to shake uncontrollably. So also my weeping and my cries of terror. Never had I or any man known the depth of repulsion as I knew it when I saw the wantonness and evil that poured into that cup. He he goes on to say, this time it was not the transgressions of the sons of Abraham that I saw, but those of the heathen. Within the cup's iniquitous brew, I watched the sins of heathendom spill their idolatry, blasphemy, and the loathsomeness of all that the heathen imagination could conjure up. I cried, oh the brutality of man towards man. I saw the battles, the wars, the suffering, the pain, the slavery, and the staggering depravity of heathendom all found their way into the cup. All the mal, mal I, I don't know what that word is, malfeasance of mankind, whether Jew or heathen, gathered into one place and disappeared within that cup. All wickedness waited to mingle with all purity. All damnation calling out to envelop all righteousness. All that was heinous waiting to annihilate all holiness. All waited for me to yield to the cup. He goes on to say, the Jews, yes, the heathen, yes. But oh, must I drink the draught of the sin of the other realm. No part of me could grasp the vastness of the incarnate evil which was forming before my eyes. It was not only my lot to behold the the iniquities committed in the visible realm, but also those monstrous acts committed in realms unseen. The cup trembled as the contents of the deeds of the fallen and accursed citizens of the unseen realm poured into the cup. With unspeakable horror, I watched the full corruption of the damned spirits, the foulness of the fallen angelic host, the perniciousness of the princes of the perdition, all flowed into the vomitous brew." Oh, Father, I cried out with unutterable pain. If there is any way, please remove this cup from me. Then in horrendous resignation, I cried out. But if not, then your will be done. This gives us a whole different view of the cup. The cup that Jesus said he came to drink. It's hard to talk about sin in the cup without talking about the cross. And I know in church it can be uncomfortable. I, I, you know, like my wife will not even watch the Passion movie. She said my heart can't handle it. And I, and I understand that, and I understand viewing a bloodied, beat-up human being on a cross can be emotionally hard for us to bear, but I think it is so vital for us to have a a series and period of our year where we view the horrificness of what Jesus endured. Because if we don't know how bad the bad news is, we can never appreciate how good the good news is. If we don't understand what we have been delivered from and what we have been saved from and the price that Jesus paid, how can we accurately handle and receive the abundance of grace that he gives us? Sin is what put Jesus on the cross. I love what John Stott says. He says, before we can can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And that's what I'm saying. We're gonna celebrate the cross. We celebrate the price that was paid, but also in that celebration, we have to realize we are celebrating, (laughs) but I put him there. And I hope you don't hear condemnation, shame, or guilt. I hope you hear how good God is. I hope you feel even a releaseness in your spirit, a thankfulness well up. God, thank you. When Jesus was on the cross, the gospel writer John, in John chapter 19, verse number 30, Jesus was on the cross. The final thing he said was, he said this, when he had received the drink, and the drink that Jesus received, was this kind of wine, this kind of concoction of wine and vinegar, and basically something that would numb those being crucified. But I think it's symbolic that it says drink, as Jesus was about to complete the drink, the cup that he was about to have. Jesus said, it is what? Finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That, That phrase, it is finished, is so... So powerful. It's so powerful. Why? Because let me tell you, it is the Greek word. Now I stutter, so I'm, I'm gonna try to say this one. Uh, long syllable words I struggle with. Okay, Tet, hold on. tetelestai. Tetelestai. It's the Greek word tetelestai, and the reason this word is so powerful is because of the connotations that it has, even outside of what Jesus said. Because this word means to bring to completion meaning that when a military general went out and completed a mission saying, my job is complete, he would come back and tell his boss, tetelestai, it's finished, it's complete, the mission is complete. But it was also the term for when a debt had been paid. It was an accounting term that when a debt had, when there was a debt that had been accrued, when it had been paid, When it was paid in full, tetelestai. When a season had finished, when an old season had passed, and as that old season has passed, a new season in someone's life had dawned or a period of time had passed, and now a new period of life was beginning, people would say tetelestai. When people did something in one season that would then last, the ramifications would then last into the next season, people would say, tetelestai. How does this relate to the cross? When Jesus was on the cross and he said, tetelestai, the debt has been paid, he was saying, the mission that I came to do was complete. He was saying, the debt of mankind's sin has been accounted for and covered. The old covenant, the old laws, the Old Testament law, I have just fulfilled it. Now we're in a new covenant of grace, not law. But also too, when he said tetelestai and when what happened then had effects in the future as well, Jesus was saying, I am not only paying for the sins that have been done, I am paying for the sins that will be done. And that when he said, it is finished, he was saying, your sins before, past, present, and future have been covered under the blood of Jesus on the cross. Isn't this good news, family? This is good news, tetelestai. It is finished. What this ultimately accomplished, Paul sums up in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This word righteousness is powerful because really what this word means is right standing. That when God looks at you, he doesn't see what you've done, he sees what Jesus did. So essentially Jesus lived the life you could not live, died the death you should have, Died, rose from the dead, and defeated your greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death. He holds the key to death, hell, and the grave. And because Jesus won, he has the power to give it to whoever he wants to. And this is why Jesus says, when you put your faith and trust in him, now you receive Christ's righteousness. Essentially, you you reap the benefits of what Jesus accomplished. So you give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. And this makes you be in right standing with the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth. My prayer is that as a church, individually and corporately, this would be the foundation for where we would live from. Why? Because this, see here's the thing. How should we respond to being forgiven of our sins and made righteous in God's sight? How should, how should we respond? So how should we respond to this news? If this is the good news, how should we respond? Along those lines, Romans 12, which the book of Romans is a theological masterpiece where Paul literally, step by step, brick by brick, presents the case of how bad the bad news is, but how good the good news is in Jesus. And then in Romans chapter 12, this is where it gets really good. Because what Romans 12 is actually is, is the climax of how we should respond in response to the good news of what Jesus has done, accomplished, and offers us. And this is what it says. This is in KJB. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, Now, if that's not KJV, I don't know what is. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, and brethrenesses, I don't know, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your, and I want all of us to say this word together, reasonable service. What Paul is saying here is the most logical thing we could do in response to the grace of God is to give ourselves back to Him. He's like, why? Because it's reasonable. In other words, he's like, it makes logical, it's the most logical deduction and conclusion. When you look at the equation and what we deserved and what God gave, our response logically is, give your life to him. Give it, give it back to him. It makes sense. This language, even, even look at the language, the language when she said worship, exactly, because when he's talking about a living sacrifice, where like your life literally becomes a living, walking, breathing sacrifice of thanks to the God that gave you the life you have anyway. So now we live the, a life of worship. You can come up God. You can, you, you, you live your life as a response to God. And your life literally becomes a life of worship in response to the grace and forgiveness of God. This word worship we have all messed up because we've deducted it to be a time in the service. We've deducted it to be a genre of music. We've deducted it to be a place we go. So we kind of put worship in this box of it is a place you go to, a genre of music we sing, a time of singing in the service, when what Paul is encouraging us is worship is not just, worship can be parts of those things, but worship inevitably isn't just a song on a Sunday, it's a life lived Sunday through Saturday. My heart today, my goal today, is that you would see how bad things are. Online, my, my, my heart today, if you're joining us online, is that you would feel and see how bad things are. But you would also see how good Jesus made it. The price that Jesus paid. And that we would have a revelation during this Easter season, as we're gonna be back in this place next Sunday, Worshiping a risen Savior, we would first accept the fact that he died for us, by us, because of us. But he made a way for us. And that in response to that, maybe there are some of you today, you've never responded to that good news by doing what I said, by by repenting of your sins. And repenting of your sins is literally saying, God, your way is better than my way at the heart of it. Maybe you've never repented and turned to him. Maybe you've been in church your whole life and you've even been involved in the church, but you don't ever remember you actually giving your sin to Jesus. Maybe today you need to make that decision. There are some of you today, but I believe there are many of you here today, you need to be reminded of the sin that you have, but the goodness of God, like you've received Jesus, but how many of you know, sometimes sin in the cross can be so old news. We need it to be good news right now. So my prayer is that some of you would have this reawakening, this kind of like, like Jesus, like this. I don't even know what the word is. Like this reawakening of the grace of God. And that in response, say, you know what? I'm every minute, every second, every moment, I'm going to live in response as worship, a living sacrifice to you. Why? Because you have to? So you don't go to hell? Are we crazy? Because it's reasonable. And then we would be reasonable followers of Jesus that live our lives in response to Him. Is anyone thankful for the cross here today? Is anyone thankful for the grace of God? Is anyone thankful that your debt has been paid? Would you pray with me, Jesus? We thank you for today. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, for what you spoke today. And Lord, we just pray that as, as, as we contemplate how we should respond to this, that we would be challenged, that we would accept the voice of your Holy Spirit whatever that voice is, that we would take whatever step you are asking us to do today. Just, if we could just continue praying and I'm just gonna ask you to kind of keep your head bowed, keep your eyes closed. I just want you to do some business with God and maybe just ask him, Lord, is, is there, even as David prayed, is there sin I need to give to you? Are there ways of thinking and living, operating that that maybe you need to give to Jesus today? Maybe today you, you need to make a decision to give, like maybe you've never done it before, like give Jesus your sin. So you can have hands free to open and receive his grace today. So just right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed, if, if you would say, John, I need to receive the good news, the, the gospel. I need to give my sin to Jesus and receive his righteousness and be in right standing with God. Just with every head bowed, every, every eye closed, the, the way we do it at our church and the way that we invite you to respond is we just, we just ask you to say yes. And we believe that as you say yes, what that actually does is that becomes your word of faith to open up your heart and welcome in the King of kings and Lord of lords and to have Jesus not just be savior, but be Lord of your life. To where you aren't sovereign, he is. To where you're, you're, you are repenting and turning to him. So if that is you today and you've never done that, you've never said yes to follow Jesus, I wanna invite you to take that step and give your sin to him so you can have hands open to receive his righteousness. With every about, every eye close. I'm gonna count to three when I do. If that is you, would you just say yes? You can say it loudly, quietly, but I just feel the Holy Spirit prompted some of you here today have said you are not here by accident. You are here with uh, with a purpose and your purpose has been to respond to the gospel today. So with every about, every eye close, I'm gonna count to three when I do. Would you just say yes? Ready, one, two, three. Thank, thank you, God. Thank you, God. If you said yes today, I'm, I'm gonna invite you to pray with me and I'm just, I'm just gonna say a prayer and this, there is nothing magical about this prayer. I just, through this prayer, I wanna take your hand and put it in Jesus' hand. But I'm gonna ask all of us here to join in with those that said yes. I heard many. And we just wanna take their hand and put it in Jesus' hand, but we also wanna let them know they're not alone. But for those of us that have followed Jesus, we are with them. So can we all just come together and pray this prayer right now? Say this, Jesus, I give you my sin, my way of doing things. I give it to you. And I receive forgiveness of my sins, your grace, your love, and your forgiveness. I receive your righteousness. Though I was far from you, you welcome me. You have become my father, my father in heaven. Jesus, today, thank you for paying my debt and giving me the benefits. Thank you for dying on the cross, in my place, and for my sin. Thank you for your blood. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. And if today's message helped or inspired you, feel free to share it with someone. If after today's message you have questions, need help, or just want somebody to talk to or process with, just shoot LifeHouse a text to 757-690-2401. For more information about LifeHouse, you can visit us at lifehouseonline.church. That's lifehouseonline.church.